Welcome to Prairie Doc On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation of 501c3 provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Doc programs. Please follow the Prairie Doc on Facebook and YouTube and go to prairiedoc.org for more information on making a charitable gift. From your first period to your last, your menstrual cycle is a complex relationship between hormones from the brain and hormones from the ovaries. Men are to menopause, tonight on call with the Prairie Doc. Hello, I'm Dr. Deborah Johnston, tonight's Prairie Doc. This season, we continue to bring our viewers trusted health information from doctors and health professionals within your own communities. Thank you for joining us again. Tonight, we are discussing women's health and hormones. And joining us in the studio in Brookings are Dr. Amy Kelly from Sanford Obstetrics and Gynecology Clinic and Dr. Dominique Bodwine from Avera Medical Group Family Health Center, Dwali Farm. Welcome, ladies. I'm so excited that, that you're joining us. Dr. Bodwine, I'm going to start with you. Tell us about your primary specialty and a little bit about yourself. I do general OBGYN at Avera, and I have been there for two years now. Um, I am married to my husband, Dan, and we have three young kids. You're a busy lady. We are busy. We just got a puppy. Oh, why not? <laughs> Apparently, you weren't busy enough. <laughs> we were used to the, the chaos of residency, and life is now a little bit more stable. And Dan was like, why did we do this? Why did we go backwards? Backwards. Yeah. And, well, because yes, every kid needs a, puppy. a dog. Yes. Yeah. They're yeah. puppies. Puppies are yeah. fabulous. Exactly. Yes, yeah. exactly. Dr. Kelly, uh, you're an OBGYN as well, but mm -hmm. you have a little different emphasis than Dr. Bodwine. So tell us about that. Yeah, so I um, specifically work a lot with pediatric and adolescent gynecology and have some extra training in that. Um, and so probably about a third of my practice is pediatric and adolescent gynecology. Um, and then probably about another third is obstetrics. And the last third is just general gynecology. Um, I grew up in Brandon, um, went lots of other places, came back um, to South Dakota and have three children um, and two dogs. So, <laughs> so you're saying we need a second. <laughs> well, your one dog is gonna get is gonna get lonely yeah, and then you're gonna get a gonna second. Buddy. That's yeah. what we that's yeah. what happened to us. <laughs> so. so all these nurturing people here, puppies, children. Yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. So we've really got you covered. We've got the whole range of women's health experience from pediatrics, adolescence. Um, childbearing years mm -hmm. off into um, into those postmenopausal years so uh, give us a call before we start our conversation we invite you our audience to submit your questions about your periods or any other women's health issue we look forward to answering your questions viewers can contact us in three ways call 1-888 376-6225, send an email to ask at prairiedoc.org or ask on our Prairie Doc Facebook page. We'll work to answer as many of your questions as possible given the time available. 
and sometimes we receive more questions than we can cover and we apologize if we don't get to your question. To encourage you to ask early, all questions asked in the first 20 minutes will be entered into a drawing for one of our Prairie Doc gift items. The winner will be announced at the end of the program. Your question will remain anonymous, but please provide contact information when you submit your question. And we've already gotten some questions from our viewers, so that's a really good sign. And fortunately, it's not about training dogs, uh, because <laughs> I would really not be able to answer any of those. Maybe you ladies would be no, in, in better I, shape. Uh, well, maybe a little bit. Not, <laughs> okay. not much. <laughs> I'd be better at it Okay, okay. Well, that's fortunate, because those are some of the questions we've gotten already. Excellent. We actually have two questions from email that are really very much overlapping. One person asking about vaginal atrophy and how to live with it, and another person asking about treatments option for, uh, treatment options for atrophic vaginitis um, and bioidentical options. Can this condition cause increased urination uh, and other damage to gynecologic structures. So two questions that dovetail very nicely. Mm -hmm. So Dr. Bodwine, let's start with what, what do you tell your patients about atrophic vaginitis? First off, what is it? So as you transition to menopause, your ovaries are no longer releasing estrogen and the vaginal tissue is estrogenized during your years of menstruation. So that provides the elasticity and the lubrication. When estrogen is gone, then you can have um, pain with intercourse and dryness, and that's called vaginal atrophy. We um, meet with our patients in the exam room and we take their history to see if they would be candidates for a topical estrogen cream, which would be the most beneficial um, mm -hmm. option. Certainly patients with a personal history of um, breast cancer that are hormone sensitive, that would not be an option. Um, At least that initially. Yes, yeah. yes. So uh, Primary option. Yeah. yeah. And I think then, that sometimes people, sorry to interrupt yeah, no, no, you, no. but I think sometimes people worry so much about vaginal estrogen. They've heard all these bad things about taking hormones and bad yes. things about estrogen. And vaginal estrogen is actually a very different beast because it really is made to only affect the vagina. And so some people who may not be candidates for oral estrogen actually can use vaginal estrogen. Um, so it, there are actually some very good options out there for people. Yeah. So of course, as a, as a family physician, primary care doctor, vaginal estrogen is something that I talk about with people a lot. Yeah. But it's not the only option. And you don't always have to go straight to medical no. prescription type options. So what are some non-prescription things that women who have some vaginal atrophy might be able to do. Yeah, and I, th I think the one other thing I'd add to vaginal talking about what it is, is that you actually don't have to just be menopausal to have a little bit of this. Mm. One of the main people I give vaginal estrogen to is actually people who are, who are postpartum because the other things that really decrease the estrogen in your body is breastfeeding. And so women who are breastfeeding, especially women with multiple children who are 
making a lot of breast milk can end up with a lot of atrophy too and then they have pain with intercourse um, and it can be a big problem for breastfeeding women um, so you know certainly over the counter things that you can try is you, of course you can use lubricant if your main complaint is during intercourse and dryness during intercourse um, and a lot of times that's enough for people um, the other thing that you can try is there's a couple of different vaginal moisturizers I like reverie um, most of the ones that you would want to try would be ones that have hydrouronic acid in them because it helps keep the pH in a good level for the vagina. Um, do you have some specific things you like to use no, on the counter? No, th this is a good tip. I'm, I'm fresh, so this is... <laughs> yeah, it's so nice to have someone yeah. that's like right out of yeah. training and then I've been, yeah, I've been out of training you're, you're, for 15 years. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's yeah. nice to feel like the, the old wise woman sometimes, isn't <laughs> oh, it? Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you, yeah, thank yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not too old, but yeah, yeah. 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 yes. But um, you're the wise woman. So. There you go, yes. there you go. Yes. Um, but really, I think, you know, lots of people are so worried about vaginal, about using hormones in the vagina, and actually it can be safe. There are some things that act like vaginal estrogen, but are technically estrogen as well, and those are prescriptions. Mm -hmm. But there's a, a oral medication called Osfina that is, works it, it works kind of like an estrogen, but it only works like estrogen on the bone and on the vagina. So that can be a nice option for people. Um, and the other one is um, Inarosa, which is a different hormone that can also work a little bit like um, estrogen on the vagina. So there are some different options out there. And I've um, heard some of the kind of more advanced treatments about like laser treatment mm -hmm. and those kinds of things mm -hmm. so we have we have more recent literature that has said that the laser treatments don't necessarily um, make a great impact clinically so the yeah. the Mona Lisa is the most common mm -hmm. laser treatment and yeah. they found that um, scores are similar in patients who have Mona Lisa and who were blinded who without don't. it. Yeah. 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 Unfortunately, because that was a, a cool treatment. Yeah, it was cool. It was a it was a nice idea, and I think that um, you know that's that's the thing that makes it hard in medicine. I think for patients is things change over time. Mm. You we know, learn and more. well, yeah, as we learn more, um, and so you know that can be really frustrating and confusing. I think as a patient because yes. um, and as a doctor, yeah, yeah. absolutely, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. Um, but the Mona Lisa was something I think a lot of we had a lot of studies about specifically for breast cancer survivors because often the treatments that mm. um, that we use for breast cancer are really lower estrogen levels and so that can, vaginal atrophy and issues with that oh, can be so hard for breast cancer survivors. So one of the callers had asked about other implications. We've talked mostly about uh, pain with intercourse, vaginal dryness. What other symptoms or consequences might a woman experience from um, uh, vaginal atrophy? Um, they could have a little bit of postmenopausal bleeding. They could have um, some infections, erosions, if yeah, in it, certain certain circumstances. Yeah, with certain things in the vagina, like pests, certain mm -hmm. other things mm -hmm. that are in there can cause more erosions. Um, I find that um, 
some people, if it's, it's, if it's really very significant, especially like with breast cancer survivors, um, I find some people do have some urinary symptoms from mm -hmm, it. Mm -hmm. um, because the urinary tract, the urethra, um, is really right above the vagina. And that tissue is estrogen sensitive as well. Um, and so I do know that there are urologists and also a lot of gynecologists who help treat some urinary issues. And it's not always the primary treatment for some of that, but it can help. Can be part of yeah, it. Yeah, it can be both part of it. The incontinence and sometimes the recurrent urinary tract infections are. Yeah, of both of those. And also sometimes just like irritative symptoms, mm -hmm. um, like people who feel like they have to go to the bathroom a lot. Sometimes that can be helpful as well. Yeah. So good. That, it's in that um, triggered uh, pelvic floor physical therapy. So oh, in addition yes, to the, the pharmaceutical things, um, I think uh, our physical therapists are such a good modality of care that um, if they have some stenosis from the atrophy where that vaginal tract is narrowing, physical therapy would be a phenomenal option for patients. Yeah. Yeah. I think Absolutely. physical therapy, pelvic floor physical therapy is something that's really exploded oh, in the yeah. last 10 years and rightly mm -hmm. so. I mean, it really makes a big difference for... It's a life... I mean, it is life-changing for some yeah. people. It really can it, be. It really is. Um, Men and, and women. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think we're, America is a little behind in that. If you look at Europe, Almost everyone who has a baby in Europe has part of their postpartum care is pelvic is floor, pelvic phys floor physical therapy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, wonderful. Well, let's look. We've got oh my goodness, a lot more questions here. All right, um, one person. This kind of relates to some of what we've have talked about. What is hormone therapy, and is it safe? That is like a huge question. <laughs> it is, isn't it? Uh, that's and, like a whole hour episode easily. I am, open the can. I am old enough that when I came out of training, I can remember having conversations just trying my hardest to get 80-year-old women to start taking hormone replacement because we really believed mm -hmm. yeah. that this was revolutionary and so mm -hmm. important and um, mm -hmm. things have changed a little bit after yeah. the women's health study. And when I was in medical school, the women's health study came out and so there was this big swing like all hormones are bad, bad. nothing. Mm -hmm. And I think that we've kind of come back to, you know what, I don't think any of those approaches were right. You know, not everyone should be on hormone replacement. And, but also, like, not for some no people, one. correct, for <laughs> some right. people, it can be, it's, it can be a really good um, treatment for certain things. So I think that we've kind of come a little bit more back to the middle where I often tell people, like, hormones aren't good or bad. And it depends on what hormones we're talking about because I mean there's thousands of hormones in your body right so if we're just talking about reproductive hormones they're not good or bad but um, the, it's all about like the amount the timing they're it's very complicated and so um, a lot of it depends on like the personal and family history of that person what their risks are for the future um, what their past history has shown or their personal history of risk, um, as well as like what are their goals? Like what are we trying to do for them? Um, and what are their symptoms? So it's, it's a really, it's a very complicated question that's hard. We try to answer individually, so it can be kind of hard to talk about like it in broad strokes in some ways. Yeah. Sometimes I have people come to me and ask about, first off, 
I want to test my hormones. Oh. <laughs> exactly. Oh. Which sounds like it should be really easy. Dominique, tell our viewers why is that a very difficult yes. thing so, to do? So uh, throughout your whole life as a woman, your hormones could be any number at any given time. And they are, they're fluctuant by the hour, by the day. and they don't have a lot of clinical relevance. So when we have patients who are maybe in that perimenopausal state and we want to prove, hey, your FSH is really high and your estrogen is really low, that can tell us like, oh, this supports a menopausal state or a, a state of menarche, but in between, or reproduction. It's helpful for our reproductive yeah. endocrinologists. Yeah, for people but, trying to get Yes, uh, but yeah. at, at, at any other time, it's, it is the cost is there's not a lot of benefit from that information because it's not gonna change your management yes. in what yeah. the numbers show. Yeah. Because you don't know where are you in that ever-changing yes. cycle. Yes. So yeah. having one number doesn't, doesn't tell you really much. tell you mm -hmm. very much. And, and the other thing is, is there's a lot of things that women take that affect those those labs. Mm -hmm. You know, I often have women come to me and they're like, I got these I got my hormones tested and my estrogen and progesterone is really low, something's wrong with me. And we chat and they're on the birth control pill. Well, guess what? That's normal when you're on the mm -hmm. pill because that's how your body responds is by keeping those levels low. And it's just a function of being on the birth control pill. And then here they spent hundreds of dollars and it didn't tell them anything. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think you know that's the real thing. In medicine, I have a very strict belief and tell medical students this all the time. We shouldn't check things if it's not gonna change what we're gonna do or it's not gonna add information that we need to know. That we need. Mm -hmm. Puberty is the time when physical and emotional development changes kids into young adults. Prairie Doc reporter Sam Schauer spoke with pediatrician Dr. Daniel Bodwine about how parents should have open conversations about this transition and what physical signs they should be looking for. Dr. Daniel Bodwine is a doctor at Avera Health in Sioux Falls who helps adolescents with signs of puberty. He says for girls, 8 to 13 years old is when puberty starts, but that doesn't mean the first period will occur immediately. Typically, it's not the first thing that comes during puberty. Usually that's breast development, whether it's breast buds or just the tissue surrounding the nipple. That's usually what will start developing first. And then most of the time, within a couple to about two and a half years, most young women will start to have menarche or that first menstrual cycle. Dr. Bodwine says that on average, 12 to 12 and a half is when girls will have their first period. For both boys and girls, puberty can be a rough time in their lives with their emotions, bodies, and friendships. But your body is going through this immense change where you have these really big influx of hormones and it can be you know, really difficult because you're trying to grow, you're gaining height, you're having, you know, your voice might be changing, you're ending up with armpit hair or pubic hair and just your body might be changing and it might even be changing at a different time than some of your friends. This can lead to some adolescents feeling confused, especially when it comes to sports. They'll say, well, so-and-so has started puberty and it looks like they've started developing and I'm 12 and I haven't, I haven't yet and I feel different and I feel uh, um, you know, like I'm, I'm behind. And so talking about that with kids I think can be really imperative to their, their not only letting them know this can be physiologically normal, but it can be really helpful for their mental health too. 
That is why Dr. Boldwine likes to bring up puberty to adolescent patients and their families around seven to eight years old. I want them to know so they can ask me about it. If it's too early in a, a young girl who's maybe seven and starts to have breast development, well then we can talk about that and we can decide if there's any further evaluation or referrals we need to do to make sure nothing is happening too early. He says some girls might not even experience puberty until they are 11 or 12, but he likes to bring it up to families in case some girls start earlier. There can be many reasons why that might be the case, and you may have already had other signs of puberty beginning, whether that was at 11 or 12 or even 13, but if you've gotten to 15 and have not had a menstrual cycle yet, that's a reasonable conversation to have. such an important topic and actually we had someone come in um, on email and say that their child is 10 and what should they be looking for to gauge when their child is going to start puberty so what a wonderful little bit of extra yeah, information yeah, for yeah, them yeah. so good absolutely good um yeah that's great yeah yeah um so what do you recommend because i know this is an area of special interest mm -hmm. to you yeah. So what do you recommend that your parents talk to their children about when they're starting to talk about puberty? So you stop me if I go too long because this is my jam <laughs> and this is what I love. Um, so I, you know, I think there's so many different things to talk about when it comes to puberty. Like there's puberty itself, which for young women, sometimes women, especially women of color, will have signs of puberty at seven or eight, and that's not actually abnormal. Um, and so, you know, really, you have to be talking about this a lot younger than you think sometimes. Um, and so I think, you know, seven, eight, nine is a really good age to start preparing girls for what puberty is, what it means, what to expect. Because if you don't know anything, you suddenly get your period, like that could be really scary for a young woman. Um, and those women who are the first people through puberty, it, it's a little tougher to be the first girls in your class to go through that. So having your mom kind of helping you walk you, walk you through that can be super helpful. But you know, outside of puberty, there's also lots of other things to talk about. You know, t t those teenage years are so tough. I have a couple of them in my house. Um, <laughs> and you know, I mean, you also like, you need to start talking about, um, about consent, you know, bodily autonomy, like about, God forbid, sex. <laughs> um, and I, and I say, say that jokingly, but it's, it's true. Like, Children do need to know some basic things about sex around eight, nine, ten, um, and they don't have to know the whole shebang. And you want to hear it from your parents before exactly. you hear it from your friend at school. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly, because mm -hmm. your friend at school probably doesn't even know what they're talking about. Let's be honest. Um, I use the I use the um, term eight is great, nine is fine, ten is too late. Now it's never too late to talk to your kids about this stuff, so that's kind of a misnomer. But by ten, you're probably going to have to not only talk to your kids about it, but also talk to all the things they've heard that are wrong. Because mm -hmm. they'll have heard a bunch of stuff already. And it's much easier to talk to an eight-year-old. They don't even know they're supposed to be embarrassed by this stuff. Um, so it's much easier to kind of get into that when they're younger than when they're a little bit older, actually. So 
Um, important information and important yeah. to make sure to keep those lines of communication open. Absolutely, because kids. it's not one talk. I mean, if you are, it's it's talks over time. You're not going to tell an eight or nine year old about STDs necessarily. You know, I mean, like it's mm -hmm. it's a conversation that you have in bits and pieces as your kids grow up and as they need more information. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you don't have to answer questions they're not asking. Correct. Yeah. You just need to make sure that you're giving them the opportunity and giving them some information to chew over and think about so that yeah. they can More think of their questions. questions. Yeah. Exactly. Absolutely. So um, here is another question from email. Is it normal for my child to have irregular cycles? They have just started their period this last year. Dominique. So I always like to talk about this with my teenage patients. Um, your body is really cool as a woman. You have a gland in your brain that communicates with your ovaries, that communicates with your uterus, and they all have to work in sync to have a menstrual period. So any stressors can throw off that signaling process. At the very beginning of it all, it can be an immature access. So those messaging signals are necessarily in sync every single month, just like her mom's might be. But mm -hmm. as the first couple of years progress, they'll become more normal. Um, certainly it is a, a, the best time to talk to a provider about the menstrual cycle because we know that the menstrual cycle can be um, a good vital sign and mm -hmm. um, tell us a lot about a patient's health. Mm -hmm. yeah. So. Obviously, women that have just started having their periods, things can be very irregular and chaotic for them. Mm -hmm. What's normal for older women? What's normal for your 25-year-old woman who comes in if she says, you know, I don't, I don't get a period every 28 days, does that worry you? So it depends on how often she is getting a period. So, and is she on something that's stopping her period? Because there are definitely methods of contraception that do change the frequency of periods so that's it depends on the woman um, but in general uh, we consider normal periods to be every 21 days to 35 days so that's the first day of your menstrual cycle to the first day of the next one um, and so it can vary a little bit a lot of women do have cycles that are very consistent like 27 28 29 days um, but it's not necessarily abnormal for them to vary just a little bit more particularly if you're not on something hormonal for contraception um, and you know we would usually I tell people if they're more than seven days if they're heavy you're changing a tampon more than every hour or two consistently for more than a couple of days then maybe it's time to come talk to us if you are having pain that is um, making it unable for you to go about your daily life um, and is not really helped with ibuprofen, then it might be time to come talk to us as well. Um, but yeah, not every woman has periods every month because sometimes we deliberately make that not happen. <laughs> so, um, you know, and that's, that's okay. I think that, um, you know, I often tell young women just getting their period, if they have very irregular cycles, like that can be normal, 
but it also can be very frustrating for a young woman, someone who's a gymnast training or mm. who's in cross country. Like you don't want to get your period in the middle of a cross country meet or a, a trip to band camp yeah, or whatever. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think that yes, periods are natural and they're fine to have. But like we have the ability to help people's lives be a little bit better if their periods are bothersome to them or causing trouble. Yeah. So assuming you're using these methods, is it safe to not have a period, Dominique? Yes, so um, a lot of patients ask me, is this going to impact my fertility in yes, the future? Absolutely. And, and uh, what I'd like to point out is sometimes when we start a form, say a combined oral contraceptive pill for patients who have something called polycystic ovarian syndrome, which means that their ovaries aren't releasing an egg and their brain is not telling their ovaries to release the egg and their uterus to have a period. Um, we give them their period with that birth control pill, um, mm -hmm. that we were disguising a condition that might have caused infertility in, in the future. So mm -hmm. oral contraceptive pills or any form of um, contraception or hormonal therapy that might suppress a period certainly does not impact fertility. Yeah, but absolutely. The caveat is that maybe we were treating a condition that might have influenced yeah. fertility in the yeah, future. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. And that's and a and super I, common problem. A lot yeah. of patients worry about, about yeah. that. And mm -hmm. I like to tell people, you know, if you're on birth control and now you're 35 wanting to get pregnant, it's going to be harder. It's than when harder you're than when you're 20 than when right. you're 25. So delaying yeah. fertility impacts that's your absolutely. fertility. Yes, but. The birth control pill you that you use to yeah. delay is not, is not what what yeah. was the factor. Yeah, it's actually really interesting. I, I I really enjoy medical history, and one of the things that I found out in reading is that the only reason that there are placebo pills in birth control pills, so that's why you get pills, mm -hmm. or that's why you get periods with pills, is there's a week where, or sometimes less, but but some pills that do not have hormones in them, and then you have a withdrawal bleed, um, and the only reason those were put in is marketing. So in the 50s, a marketing team thought that women would find birth control pills more acceptable and natural if we had our periods. There's not actually a medical reason for it. For it. Which is why we can do extended cycling. Correct. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And but I, not I, with I, every pill. No. Yes. Yes. Yeah. There's yes. some tricks to that. That's true. There are some tricks to that. I, and I should add to that that our gynecologists treat like an endometrial condition mm -hmm. that would be a precancer with mm -hmm. those forms. So it yeah. is actually sometimes beneficial to suppress the bleeding that you're having. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Some some hormones treat cancer. Yeah. 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 So. yeah. So, um, we have a viewer says, what are some of the more uncommon symptoms of perimenopause and when should you go to your doctor? Dominique. Uncommon symptoms. Um, so I would, let's start with the common symptoms and maybe we can brainstorm this together. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so vasomotor symptoms, so hot flushes, weight gain, um, vaginal dryness like we discussed before, mood swings. Um, abnormal uterine bleeding, so as you, it's the same thing as I spoke of when you start your period, when mm -hmm. you start menstruating, as you end, as your ovaries end their life, your periods become irregular again. So mm -hmm. those would be the common things. Can yeah. you think of uncommon? 
Um, you know, I mean, perimenopause is so individual. I think mm -hmm. that's what makes it yeah. really hard, is everyone has kind of individual symptoms. Um, what I have found over the years is that many times some of those symptoms are actually a consequence of something else. So for instance, a lot of people talk about not sleeping well. Mm -hmm. That would be another mm -hmm. one that's common. Um, and then we talk about, well, are you having hot flashes? And they're not sleeping well because they're having hot flashes. Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily that perimenopause is causing the sleeping problem always. Sometimes it's that the you know it's causing a bunch of hot flashes and then you can't sleep and then you're crabby because you are not sleeping. Because that's how we torture people, is by not letting Correct. them sleep. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And so sometimes I think that, um, you know, while yes, it could totally be that weight gain and your mood swings are from perimenopause, sometimes if we fix some of those other things, sometimes those get better too. Um, I, um, a couple of things that I've had people come in with um, that are a little bit more unusual, and it's always a little hard to tell if it's from perimenopause or not, but actually I have a lot of people who come in with some joint pain. Hmm. Um, and you know, obviously, a lot of people get joint pain as, as we get older, just from you know arthritis wear and, and overuse, tear. wear and tear. Um, but it seems, sometimes it seems to be very specific places or like not always related to activity. So, um, and some of those people have benefited from having like some hormone therapy, their, their um, joints have felt better. So that's one that I don't see very often, but occasionally I do. Yeah. And let's throw out some definitions here. Yeah. What is menopause and what is perimenopause? Dominique, what so, is perimenopause? So menopause would be when you go one year or 12 calendar months without a menstrual period, without any form of suppression. Mm -hmm. um, and then perimenopause is the time before that where you might be experiencing some of these symptoms, your menstrual period might be irregular, um, and that would be the perimenopausal. And how long does perimenopause usually last, Kelly? That depends on your <laughs> uh, person. Um, the luck of the draw. It's the luck of the draw. Thank you, Grandma. Uh, so I have people who slide into menopause and don't have a one hot flash, and yeah. they just their periods are right as rain, and one day they stop and they're done and they're fine. I have other people who start having hot flashes, some you know moodiness, difficulty sleeping even 10 years before they are, go through menopause. So it varies a ton. What is the average age of menopause in the US? 52. Okay. One of the biggest moments in life will be deciding you are ready to have a child. Prairie Doc reporter Sam Schauer takes us to Sioux Falls, <clears throat> Sioux Falls to talk with Dr. Keith Hansen about the importance of talking with your doctor prior to getting pregnant. Dr. Keith Hansen is a doctor from Sanford Fertility and Reproductive Medicine, and he talks about the starting point for a couple thinking about getting pregnant. One of the first things Dr. Hansen likes to do is an optional screening to check their family and genetic history. We just have to collect a specimen, either saliva or blood, send it in, and then they can test it and tell us if they carry cystic fibrosis, spinal muscular atrophy, or any of these other really serious genetic illnesses, and then we can talk to them about the illness, explain how we can help them, um, you know, to avoid that illness. After that, Dr. Hansen likes to help the couple enhance their health before getting pregnant, whether that be managing diabetes or changing medication to not harm the baby. The better health that a person is in, 
before they get pregnant, the less likely they are to have complications um, during their pregnancy. We also like to evaluate them to see if they have an underlying medical issue that needs to be you know, treated or, or optimized before they become pregnant. Another thing Dr. Hansen likes to check with adults is checking with their recent immunizations and see if they're up to date. Because it's really important for a woman and her husband too to be up to date on all their immunizations because you know we've come a long way in medicine to be able to treat our patients with vaccinations that have reduced the risk of getting some serious illnesses during pregnancy, which can be devastating to the mother and devastating to the baby. Once all that is checked out, the woman must stop whatever birth control they use, and Dr. Hansen says once periods return, couples should be ready to start trying for a pregnancy. And as soon as you start having regular periods, you know, as soon as you start ovulating, which usually is, regular periods are usually a sign of ovulation, then they could start trying to get pregnant. Dr. Hansen says the prime time for trying to get pregnant is roughly six days, with the last day being ovulation. The best time to get pregnant is within that six day window. You know, the pregnancy rate really drops outside of that time period. Dr. Hansen does bring up that as a woman ages, it will be harder for a couple to get pregnant. As a woman grows older, her chances of getting pregnant reduce because of, you know, the ovaries start to not work as well and there's there an increased risk of chromosomal anomalies which increase the risk of miscarriages. Pregnancy is such an important part of women's hormones, and getting pregnant is uh, sometimes a bit of a challenge. So when do you like to see your patients who are in that contemplating pregnancy stage? Um, I, I really like to see people as soon as they're considering pregnancy. Um, you know, there are a lot, uh, I think people worry about the medicines they're on. Most women are on mm -hmm. several different prescription medications. And, you know, they want to know if it's okay to stay on those. Sometimes it's really important that they stay on them. And so I would much prefer to see people, you know, in the six months to a year prior to them trying to get pregnant. Because if they do need to change a medication for a very important um, medical issue like seizure disorder, sometimes mm -hmm. you have to change your medication. Um, and we want to do that and want them to have that under really good control before they get pregnant. Um, so that's kind of where when I like to see people. Anything to add, Dominique? I, I think I completely agree. Before um, even attempting pregnancy, it is good to see patients in the clinic to talk about their menstrual cycle because mm -hmm. infertility alone is a very lonely path. And to go to go six months to a year without conceiving and not understanding why or what's happening. I think having that conversation and knowing it is it is common, it is not normal, it is gonna be okay, call us, we are a resource. Yeah, and absolutely. I think that I think that absolutely. having that in front is gives some hope. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, I usually tell people to come in to call us at six to eight months if you're not pregnant. It is average though. I mean, average people, it takes six mm -hmm. to eight months to get pregnant, so that's very typical. But I often have people give us a call in that range if they're starting to get worried because then we can get them in a couple months and hopefully if they hit that year and they're still yeah. not pregnant, 
we have an appointment set for them and we have yeah. to talk about it. And we may not want to wait that full time period if I'm already 38, 39 yeah. years oh, old. Yeah. Then I say six months. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So those are a lot of very individual yes, things absolutely. that we want to consider about. Um, lots of good questions here. So. Um, uh, here's a pregnancy related question. My daughter was labeled a geriatric pregnancy. <laughs> I hate that term. Oh my, oh my gosh, I hate that term. Yes. What, what is a geriatric pregnancy or? Can we, we please call it a geriatric Pregnancy is the greatest risk to a woman's life, regardless of the age that you are at. Pregnancy but we is know, a very, very dangerous, dangerous situation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but we know that over the age of 35, the risk of gestational diabetes, the risk of um, hypertensive disease in pregnancy, the risk of aneuploidy or chromosomal abnormalities with mm -hmm. babies increases significantly, exponentially, compared to before. So, um, it. It does. It seems like an arbitrary number, but we have to have a cutoff at some yeah. point. So 35 is what it was. Mm -hmm. Yes, and you're right. It's terrible to call it a geriatric. <laughs> it's it just because you're certainly not geriatric. No, or, you're, you're accomplished. You're, yeah. Yes, there you go. Thank you. Yeah. You're seasoned. We're the, yeah. the, We're the wise seasoned yeah. wise women. So. <laughs> but but it, it's important to know that there are some risks at that age. Even you know they go up slowly at first, and then more rapidly as you approach 40 and over. But um, it doesn't mean you can't have a healthy pregnancy. You know, I think just being aware of that, seeing your doctor beforehand, talking about those risks is just mm -hmm. super important to do. So you know what to expect and what you're getting into. And we'll try to keep that geriatric word out of your, yeah. out of your <laughs> chart. Absolutely. Certainly before yeah. you're Seventy. The closer I get, yeah. <laughs> the, close, the closer I get to geriatric, the older geriatric oh, gets in my mind. So, <laughs> here's someone who says, uh, "I have had hot flashes, but I still have my period." Yep. How can you tell if you're perimenopausal? Yeah, she probably is. <laughs> um, I, was, I was just saying, join the club. Me too. Um, although I don't have periods, I guess, because I have a marina, but which, which is, is a an wonderful, IUD. Yes, mm -hmm. a yes. wonderful treatment with that possible side effect of the no periods, yes, which absolutely. most women love. And, and I tell my patients, you know, most med students, that's what they use. Actually, most female physicians use yes. IUDs as well. Yes. That's the most common. So it's okay not to have your period mm -hmm. when you have your IUD. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, she probably is, and she. It's. I would usually tell people get your thyroid checked because that can be another common cause for hot flashes. I usually look through people's med list because occasionally they're on a medication that can mm -hmm. have that side effect, and then we talk about why are you on this medication, you know, and usually I talk about is is this something that it's more important to stay on and deal with the side effect. Is there another alternative? We talk about those kind of things, but um, if. If that's normal and they don't have any meds, welcome to perimenopause. <laughs> 
So can they, we talked a little bit about this, can they do a blood test and find out if they're perimenopausal? So the, just yeah. like a, we talked about before, the, yeah. the blood tests don't reflect what they're clinically feeling. So yeah. the estrogen can be stone cold thermal and yeah, they absolutely. might be feeling terrible. Yeah. And from Save day your to money. day, it can go up and down a mm -hmm. lot. I call it mayhem, actually. Like, that's the term I use is menstrual mayhem when I, when I talk to people about it because it kind of feels like that to some people. Um, but that doesn't mean you, you can't be treated for your hot flashes. Like, I have an estrogen patch on, and it is very helpful. So you don't have to be menopausal, meaning ha not meaning had a period done. for a whole year, to get treated for your hot flashes if they're bothersome. That is a very important point. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, and oh my goodness, what are complications health-wise associated with menopause, Dominique? So, um, when the hormone therapy, we thought we should prescribe it to everybody. It was because we we observed that women die later than men because mm -hmm. of the hormones that their ovaries release because they're cardioprotective. Mm -hmm. um, so we know that until women reach menopause, the, the rate of cardiac disease is much lower and then, than men. And then once they reach menopause, that kind of really accelerates. Mm -hmm. So after menopause, cardiovascular disease is certainly um, something that a patient would really want to uh, be aware of, urinary issues, um, osteoporosis. Yeah, so um, your, your bone density is um, kind of at its peak in your 30s, and then mm -hmm. after that, it plateaus and starts to go down. So I, I speak with all of my perimenopausal patients about the importance of fitness and mm -hmm. building that muscle to combat yes, all of it. You don't have to have an expensive gym membership. You don't have to um, run have a lot marathons. of equipment. You, you don't, don't have to don't. run <laughs> half marathons. Um, a lot of tips that I give them is when you're going to the grocery store, park in the last parking spot in the parking lot. Take the stairs everywhere you go. If you can do planks, do planks. If you can lift some free weights, do that. But building that muscle and um, taking care of your cardiovascular health will mm -hmm. just benefit you in the long run. Um, I think we really neglect bone health and we know that at a certain age bone fracture is the major cause of death. So yeah. um, building those muscles and protecting hips and um, arms is important. Yeah. We yeah, are and it helps with menopause. Men yeah. Exercise yeah. is great. Great. We are almost out of time. I think we have time for one more question and I'm going to give this one to you Kelly because I think what would you say to a young woman worried about her first pap smear? Oh, I do I do a lot of first pap smears. I love doing yeah, first pap smears. <laughs> I do too, actually. Um, so first of all, I think it's really important for everyone out there to know you don't have to have a pap smear until you're 21. It didn't always used to be that way. Um, the only exception to that is transplant patients who do need to start younger if they're sexually active. Um, and But there aren't too many transplant, transplant patients, patients at that age, there's a few. <laughs> um, and so typically what I tell people is it's going to be about 20% of what how bad you think it is. It's always gonna be much easier than you think it is. Um, I do lots of first pap smears and really, if someone uses tampons, they are gonna do fine. They're gonna do fine and we'll walk you through it 
you will be in control. Um, it's uncomfortable and it's weird. It's mostly just weird. Yeah. Um, but I typically, you know, I have the luxury. Should, should be minimal pain. Should be minimal pain. And if you do have pain, you need to tell us so that so we, we can, can talk do... about, is there a problem? Do we need to help you with something? Um, and the winner of our, this has been such a great conversation, ladies. I'm sorry, we're gonna have to cut yeah. it off here. The winner of our prize tonight is Lisa from Rapid City. Thank you, Lisa, for asking a question during the first 20 minutes of the show. A gift will be sent to you and we'll be back after this. On Call with the Prairie Doc has been a leading source of health education for 21 seasons. Join us as we continue to provide health information based on science built on trust. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube to access the entire Prairie Doc library today. Aristotle is said to have referred to the female as a mutilated male. And this philosophy carried forward into much more modern times. In 1977, official FDA guidelines recommended that women of childbearing potential be excluded from early stage clinical trials. Men, particularly white men, were considered the ideal model from which the success and side effects of any particular treatment could be judged. Somehow, women's menstrual cycles made them too difficult to study while simultaneously being irrelevant to the results. The thalidomide tragedy quite reasonably brought fetal well-being to the front of researchers' minds, but there was reluctance to wait for animal teratogenicity data before starting human trials. Companies often interpreted childbearing potential to mean childbearing age, and then extended that ban to all women in all stages of research. Studies carried out in the mid to latter part of this last century frequently enrolled thousands of participants, but no women at all. This was even true in purely observational studies where nothing was being trialed or tested. Then, in 1993, Congress passed a mandate that women be included in NIH-funded trials, and the FDA changed their guidelines. Now, they said that the population studied in trials should be representative of the people likely to be treated with an intervention if it were approved. This meant that most studies had to include people of different ages, races, and genders. Once scientists started looking, it became evident that the differences between us translated to differences in the way diseases develop, the way conditions present, and the way we respond to potential treatments. We may need different doses. We may experience different side effects. We may need different treatments altogether. This can be true for differences based on age, race, health status, and of course, sex. The landscape today is very different than it was in 1993, but we still have a long way to go. 
a recent review of studies involving cardiovascular disease, cancer, and mental health interventions found that just over 40% of study participants were women. Cardiovascular disease and cancer affect men and women almost equally. In mental health research, the situation is worse. Women make up approximately 60% of those affected, but still just over 40% of those enrolled in trials. Everyone deserves to know that the recommendations their doctor makes are backed by science that includes people like them. Many treatments work just as well in people of different races, ages, or genders, but many don't. And we won't know if we don't ask that question. Thank you to our guests, Dr. Amy Kelly and Dr. Dominique Broadbine, for volunteering their time to help us learn more about periods. If you would like to see and hear more episodes of this program, please like and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, or visit us at prairiedoc.org. Look for Prairie Doc Perspectives in your local newspaper and online. Listen to us live most Wednesday mornings at 9.30 on KBRK in Brookings, and be sure to look for the podcast of this program, Prairie Doc On Call, wherever podcasts can be found. From all of us here at On Call with the Prairie Doc, thanks for joining us for another episode of health information based on science and built on trust. Until next time, stay healthy out there, people. <sighs> yes, no, and it's so. just, yeah, it was so mean good eye health keeping you connected to your surroundings the importance of eye health next time on call with the prairie doc my name is jennifer may i'm a rheumatologist in rapid city south dakota I got involved maybe around 2005. That's when I first started practicing in Rapid City and my former partner introduced me to Rick and actually got me on the on-call show. I think we did a story on gout. Um, and that was my first introduction to Rick and the Prairie Doc sort of concept. And it's a great resource for information. We have a lot of people that live in remote places. They maybe don't have a lot of good access. And we know that there's a lot of misinformation in terms of health information that you can get online. And having a reliable source for people to go to with people they recognize that they might know on the programming, I think is really important. Well, I think having anything that isn't tied to an agenda is really important. And so having access to information that you can refer your patient to that you know they're not going to get fees or get their data sold is really important. I think if people want high quality programming from local people, local experts that supports your community, supporting Prairie Doc is the way to go. For more information or to donate, please go to www.prairiedoc.org or mail your donation to Post Office Box 752, Brookings, South Dakota 57006. Thank you for your support. Thank you.
Major funding for On Call with the Prairie Doc has been provided by. At Avera, our nationally recognized health system will be right here with you, with care and coverage. Hello, possibility. Hello, healthy. Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Doc as it continues to open doors for important medical information. And with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions. Brookings Health System. Ophthalmology Limited. South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians. Avera Heart Hospital. First Bank and Trust. Dakota Allergy and Asthma. Vance Thompson Vision. Monument Health. Black Hills Medical Society. Brookings Madison Flandreau District Medical Society. Pier District Medical Society. Sioux Falls District Medical Society. Yankton District Medical Society. Orthopedic Institute. Lake Ponset Sailing Academy. Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy. Dakota Bank. South Dakota American College of Physicians. And Swiftel Communications.